Welcome to week eight of our series out of Mark's gospel account called The Way of Jesus. If you're just hopping in for the first time with us this morning, just real quick, uh, I've kind of tried to reiterate this on the end of every one of these teachings, that the, the, the idea behind this series is that there is, if we're willing to, to be honest with ourselves, there's a, um, there's a tendency in all of us to try to decide for ourselves who Jesus is and, uh, you know, emphasize the parts of him that we like and kind of ignore or at least minimize the things that he said, the things that he did that challenge us and our most tightly held convictions. And what we're left with is a Jesus that's created in our image, is what you could call that. And the nice part about that Jesus is he's remarkably easy to follow. He will never ask you to do or think anything that you don't really want to do or want to think. Um, But the problem with that Jesus is that he cannot change you or heal you in any of the ways that you need to be changed and healed because he's not real. He's just a projection of you and I. And so what you and I need more than anything else If we want to be changed and healed the way that this book and 2,000 years of church history says Jesus Christ can change and heal us, what we need most foundationally is nothing less than the real Jesus. That's exactly what we find in Mark's gospel account. And uh, so let's continue. This morning we're going to be in in Mark chapter 8. We'll read verses 22 through 30 and spend some time in it. It says, Then they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to Jesus and begged Jesus to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, Jesus asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look to me like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes, and he saw distinctly. He was cured and could see everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets, but you, Jesus asked them again, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You're the Messiah. And Jesus strictly warned them to tell no one about him. This is God's word. So we've been looking at the life of Jesus as recorded in Mark's gospel, and the entire first half of the gospel of Mark, which is eight chapters, um, sort of revolves around one central question. The question is, who exactly are we dealing with here? If you've been following along in this series, you know that that, um, story after story Uh, encounter after encounter, Jesus keeps saying things and doing things that have people constantly astonished and constantly asking themselves that very question. Who exactly is this? It's like every time they they think they have him nailed down or figured out, he does something that kind of breaks out of the boxes they tried to put him in and they have to recalibrate. And one more time they're left asking, who exactly is this man? And um, this moment that we're looking at in Mark's gospel, we kind of had to pick and choose which, um, which moments in Mark's gospel we were going to spend time in because we only have 14 weeks to cover the whole book. Um, and the reason we wanted to, to, uh, to, to spend time in this one in particular is because this moment is a, it's a pivotal moment uh, in Jesus' life and in Mark's gospel account because this is the moment when that question is finally explicitly asked and then answered. You saw that in Jesus' exchange with Peter. And, and if you keep reading through Mark's gospel account, as we will in the weeks ahead, you'll notice everything 
takes a marked turn after this. The emphasis, the tone, everything is different. And so because this is such a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry, um, as recorded in Mark's gospel, we're, we're actually going to spend two weeks here. Next week, if you come back, we're going to focus um, primarily on the exchange between Jesus and Peter. But this week, we're going to focus primarily on this peculiar little miracle story that takes place right before it. And I use the word peculiar because there is no other, there's no other miracle story of Jesus like this one. All right, I don't know if you've ever read this before or heard this before or spent some time studying it before, but at least on the surface, this is the one account in Jesus' life where it at least looks like, it really seems like his power just doesn't quite work the first time. He touches this man who's blind and it sort of gives him vision, but it's not quite, it doesn't get the job done. And so Jesus has to hit him again. And then all of a sudden the vision is, is where it needs to be. And so two questions that I ask myself when I come across a story like this is, is the first one is why did Mark record this? Right at the end of John's gospel, we're told that if you tried to record everything that Jesus said and did, the libraries of the world couldn't contain it. So every gospel writer had to be extremely selective in the accounts that they included in their gospel record. It could be, you know, thousands of chapters long, but what they, what they chose to include under, the Holy, you know, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, they obviously chose to include because they thought there was something incredibly significant for us to understand. So my first question is, why was this so important that Mark thought to include it? And then secondly, the placement of it is curious to me. Why is this healing miracle, as strange as it is, put right before this encounter with Peter, where the identity of Jesus is explicitly revealed, really for the first time in Mark's gospel. And the answer to that is that this account, this account uh, is meant to teach us about a condition that must be dealt with before you and I can understand and have our lives transformed by Jesus. And it's a condition that needs to be dealt with, not just the day that we start following him, but over and over again in deeper and deeper ways all throughout our journey with him. It's a condition, you're going to hear me use this term a lot today, it's a condition we're going to refer to as spiritual blindness. So today we're we're going to look at this passage um, from three, three angles, three things that it tells us. This passage tells us first and foremost that everyone is spiritually blind it tells us what the root of our spiritual blindness is, what we are specifically and most primarily blind to, and thirdly, how to heal spiritual blindness. So first and foremost, let's look at this idea that that we're all spiritually blind. When you zoom out from this particular story, um, what's clear is it's meant to communicate to us that spiritual blindness is a pervasive issue And it's pervasive, uh, according to this account, it's pervasive in two ways. First off, it's pervasive in its breadth, meaning who is affected by it. And secondly, it's pervasive in its depth, meaning how deeply we are affected by it. So let me kind of walk through it it, from those two angles. First off, uh, spiritual blindness is pervasive in its breadth. And you see that when you zoom out from this story and put it in the context of the whole chapter. I'm not going to read it to us. But everything leading up to this story in chapter 8 is about the spiritual blindness, not only of the Pharisees, but interestingly enough, also of the followers of Jesus, the disciples. If you were to read through chapter 8, you'll find that the first 10 verses are about, they highlight how the disciples, despite the fact that they've been spending every day with Jesus for a, a significant period of time at this point, they still don't get it. 
And then in verses 11 through 21, uh, those verses center on this idea that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people who were supposed to be the spiritual guides for God's people, despite their incredible grasp of Old Testament scripture that pointed forward to Jesus, they don't get it either. And in verse 18, just prior to this, Jesus even looks straightforwardly at his disciples, his followers, and, and I'll read you exactly what he says. He says, do you have eyes and not See, I can promise you the disciples did not feel great about themselves after Jesus asked them that question. So you zoom out from, from this whole chapter at large, and, and here's what, what, what's being communicated to us. What we're told here is that both the people who follow Jesus and the people who do not follow Jesus are spiritually blind. Now, do you realize who's included in those two groups of people? Literally everybody. Everybody follows, falls into one of those categories, either a follower of Jesus or conversely somebody who's not a follower of Jesus. And what Mark chapter 8 specifically communicates to us is none of them get it. None of them can see. All of them are blind. This, you hear me say this a lot if you come here often, this is just another example of the way that the, the story that the Bible tells us about reality and specifically about ourselves is so unique. Uh, the, 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 um, the Bible's understanding of right and wrong is unique. What I mean by that is it challenges every other paradigm. Uh, walk through that for a minute. Of course, on the one hand, the Bible does not fit into modern secularism. Modern secularism teaches that right and wrong actually don't exist. They are socially constructed and truth is relative. Obviously, the Bible does not fall into that category, but this might, might surprise you to hear. The Bible also challenges a, um, a more traditional paradigm that has a tendency to divide the world into good people and, and bad people. Uh, especially in Mark's day, but this is really the case in all traditional cultures, there's a tendency to divide the world into, on the one hand, you have good people who see the truth and live accordingly, and then on the other hand, you have the bad people who don't. Uh, That kind of dualism is actually, history has plenty of examples of this, that's that's actually a very dangerous way to view the world for, for one specific reason. The moment that a group of people begins to consider themselves the good guys and begins to look at another demographic, another race, another class, another whatever it is as the bad guys, the problem with society, the moment that you flip that switch in your mind, you now justify really any kind of behavior against them. Historically, that has led to the marginalization of people, the mistreatment of people, all kinds of acts of injustice and even genocide. And I bring this up to say the Bible does not, the Bible just doesn't go there. According to the Bible, just here in Mark chapter 8, what we're being told is that everybody's blind, both fishermen and Pharisees, Uh, both both friends and enemies of Jesus, both blue-collar and white-collar people, both religious and irreligious people, both moral and immoral people. Nobody can see. Nobody can get it. So first off, this shows us that, that spiritual blindness is pervasive in its breadth, but the specific way that Jesus heals this man is meant to show us that spiritual blindness is also pervasive in its depth. Um, I read a number of commentaries on this passage this week, and one of the things that they pretty much all agree on is this idea that the way Jesus heals this man, this kind of two-stage healing that you're not going to find anywhere else in Mark's gospel account, that is, um, the reason Jesus did it that way is, uh, is, is, is to communicate to us um, that it takes more than one touch from Jesus to cure spiritual blindness, meaning our spiritual sight is restored gradually and in stages. What I mean by that, and, and this is really difficult to argue with when you think through it, but what I mean by that is 
even if you have had your spiritual sight restored and cleared up enough to the point that you understand who Jesus is and you have a relationship with him, even then, your sight is not nearly clear enough to live the life that you should be living based on what you know and understand about Jesus. So, so before I continue, let me just pause here for a second and pull two things out of this. If this is true, that spiritual blindness is a pervasive issue, both in its breadth, who it affects, and in its depth, how deeply it affects us, let me just pull two implications of this idea before we continue. First and foremost, for those of us who believe very solidly in Jesus Christ, you're here today and you are all in on this, you are absolutely certain of who Jesus is and the truth claims that he made, what this story communicates to you is that it is, it is, it is completely wrong uh, for you and I to be impatient with or feel superior to people who either do not believe or believe less than we do. There, there's something natural in the human heart, for whatever reason, that when, whenever we feel very strongly about an idea, we're certain about something, there's something in the human heart that wants to look down on other people with this, this mindset and this posture that says, you fool, why can't you see this like I can see this? How can you be so blind? And I just want to point out, if the way that Christianity worked, if, if Christianity was something that you had to put the pieces together and, and logic it out yourself, then you would have permission to look down on people who were less intelligent than you. If Christianity was something that was works-based and you had to earn it and work for it and achieve it yourself, then you could look down on people who were lazier than you. But if, as Jesus taught and as Scripture in general teaches, that having your spiritual sight restored is a gift from God that he gives purely because of his grace, then we have no right to look down on anybody for that. And actually, and this is so much like Jesus, ironically, one of the only ways that you, that you can know that your spiritual sight is actually beginning to clear is when you, you become increasingly aware of how, of how much you still don't see. As a thought experiment here, let me, let me offer this to you. I turned 36 this week, Wednesday to be exact. Thank you. Three dozen trips around the sun, kudos to me. So as I do every birthday, I was reflecting on who I was years ago. And as a 36-year-old man, I can say with total confidence that the Ryan that I was 20 years ago, six, 16 years of age, was a fool. I can say that. Total conviction. Uh, I can look back on who I was 10 years ago at 26 years old. 26 years old, I was, I was the, your associate pastor for about two, three months. I can look back on who I was 10 years ago with total conviction and say, that Ryan was an absolute fool. That's fine to do, but, but if that pattern holds, then, <laughs> then what that means is that 46-year-old Ryan is going to look back on 36-year-old Ryan and say, that guy didn't even know what he didn't know. What a dummy which means, therefore, I'm a fool at present. And biblically speaking, the people who are the most blind are the people who refuse to humble themselves and accept that. All right, that's the first implication. But here's the second one. And for whatever reason, I was, I was really looking forward to walking us through this one. That's, that, that first implication was for those of us who are, not only are we in, we're all the way in, we know we're in. What if you're not? Meaning, what if you're listening to this and, and you don't believe, or you're struggling to believe, 
Or, and I think this is way more common than we realize, like in, even in this room right now or online. What if you're listening to this and you find yourself, if you got really honest, you would say, you really want to believe, you just can't. You've seen this work for other people. You've seen this transform other people. You wish that that would happen for you, but you just don't know what to do. If that's where you're coming from, and I was just talking to somebody recently that, where that's exactly where they were. It's like the, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? I want to go all in on this thing. I just can't do it. If that's where you're coming from, I think this story has an incredible resource for you. And if you leave, if you, if you leave with nothing else, if that's where you're coming from, I hope you just lean into the next couple minutes here. Let, let me offer you this. If that's where you're coming from, uh, what this story is communicating to you, so important to understand, is that entering into a relationship with Jesus and having your life transformed by Jesus is nothing like, despite what you've heard, despite what you've seen, despite what's been misrepresented to you, having your life transformed by Jesus is nothing like adopting a religion. Nothing like it. Right? Plenty of people in life go, I think it's safe to say that most people in life go one of two ways. Uh, either their life kind of unravels, things don't work out the way that they wanted them to, and they sort of hit a rock-bottom experience, or conversely, they do climb the ladder that they wanted to get up, only to realize once they're at the top, it was leaning against the wrong building. And so they kind of wake up one day and realize something's off, there's got to be more, and so they, they decide to, to start getting religious, and they decide to start doing religious things. You see this all the time with celebrities that are, they have everything that we're told makes us happy, they're not happy, and so they just decide to kind of get involved in like activism and things like that, and they start doing religious things. That's what I mean when I talk about adopting a religion. It's something that you can do in your own power. If you leave with nothing else, please hang on to this idea. According to the Bible, that is not how to have your life transformed by Jesus. And the reason I can say that is because a relationship with Jesus is exactly that, a relationship. And like every other relationship, I think Christians need to be reminded of this as much as people who are outside the faith. Just like every other relationship, you can really desire to have a relationship with somebody. You can approach somebody, but if the other person does not open themselves up to you and let you see who they are, a relationship's not possible. What that means for us is that you can't just wake up one day and decide, I'm going to give Christianity a shot. I'm going to adopt Christianity. So let me start going to church, reading my Bible, saying my prayers, and, and obeying the rules. And I know that that probably sounds really confusing to some of you coming from a pastor, so let me clean this up and say, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. All of those things are good. It's a good thing to go to church, to worship corporately with your brothers and sisters, to read the Bible, to pray not only are those things good, they're necessary in order to grow, but the point is you can do all of that stuff and completely miss what this way of life that Jesus invites us to follow him into called Christianity is fundamentally about. So what is Christianity fundamentally about? Christianity begins, this is the essence of having your life transformed by Jesus. Here it is. It begins with a posture of heart that comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to see you. I just can't open my own eyes. I want to know if there's truth to this. I want to know who you actually are. I want to see the change in my life that I've seen you bring in other people's lives, but I need you, Jesus, to open my eyes because unless you do that and until you do that, there's just no way this is going to happen. That's what Christianity begins with. You want a great example of this? A couple of years ago, I heard a story, and this is so much more common than you'd think, a story of a young guy uh, in training to become a minister, he was an in seminary. He was in seminary when he became a Christian. So he, he went to class, lost one day. He showed up the next day a Christian. 
And this is so interesting, but it makes sense. Once he became a Christian, he got really mad at everybody for, for at least a moment because he started to think, here I am getting ready to be a professional Christian. What, not that that even exists, but you know what I mean. He, he, he's realizing, I'm getting ready to represent Jesus to people, to tell everybody else the gospel. And, he, and he's angry at everybody else because he's thinking, why didn't anybody tell me this? So he's angry at his parents. He's angry at his spiritual mentors. He's angry at his professors. And then he started going back through his notes and his lectures and his textbooks made a discovery that, that really changed his life. He went back over his material and he realized that he had, in his lectures, he'd heard the gospel countless times before. He went back through his textbooks, realized he had read the gospel message that Jesus Christ came to provide a salvation for us that we could have never earned in and of ourselves. He'd read that message countless times before. He had even highlighted the gospel message it just never made sense to him until it made sense to him. And I say that to say there's nobody who enters into a relationship with Jesus. There's no one who has ever had their life transformed by Jesus who can't look back on their past and say, I had heard this before. I'd been around this before. Other people tried to explain this to me before, and I thought I knew it, but I didn't really know it. I was blind, but now I see. And I'll just tell you, if that has never happened to you, you are not a Christian. And, and further, I'll say, if that is not regularly happening to you in deeper and deeper ways, you're not growing as a Christian. Now, now let me go back. I said this was for people who, who you would say, you, you don't necessarily believe yet, but you really want to. If, if I was you, the question I'm asking is, okay, well, where does that leave me? You know, because maybe you hear the story of the, of the guy in seminary and you think, well, that's great, but that hasn't happened for me yet. And I really want that to happen, but you're telling me there's nothing I can do to make that happen, so what am I supposed to do? And, and pardon me for the cop-out here, but I'm going to borrow somebody else's answer to that question. His name's Jesus Christ. He, he can answer it with a little bit of authority that I can't. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus made a statement so incredible to me. He said, no one comes to him unless the Father draws them. Here's what that means. And I, man, I hope this encourages you today. It means that if you look inside your heart and you see a desire for something more than a surface level relationship with God, if you see in your own heart a desire for a life transforming relationship with Jesus, that desire in and of itself is evidence of the fact that God desires a relationship with you. So what do you do? It's the easiest part of the question to answer of all. You keep showing up and you keep leaning in, and you keep asking him, Jesus, if you're real, show me who you are. We have 2,000 years of church history full of testimonies that say that's a prayer that God eventually answers. There's spiritual blindness, something that we're all affected, to and affected by in some way, shape, or form. But, but this raises a question if you think about it, and this is kind of be, going to be our next move today. Uh, if we're all blind in our natural state, then okay, what exactly are we blind to? And what I'd offer is that there is a root of spiritual blindness, something very specific that we are particularly blind to, which is the root cause of all of our spiritual blindness and all the ways that it manifests itself. And what that thing is that we're blind to uh, is, is revealed in this exchange that Jesus has with Peter. Let me read it to you again. Very famous part of the gospel. In, in verses 27 and 29, it says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, 
Still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them again, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Messiah. Now in Matthew's gospel account, he includes a detail that Mark does not include here. He tells us that right after Peter said those words, Jesus answered him and said, Peter, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Jesus said, my heavenly father revealed that to you. You've probably heard that before, but I wonder if you've ever really thought about what Jesus is saying there. What Jesus is saying is that it does not take divine intervention to believe. Follow me here. Jesus is saying it doesn't take divine intervention to believe that Jesus is up there with the likes of Elijah, Moses, John the Baptist, or outside the Christian tradition, uh, Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha. It, It doesn't take divine intervention to look at Jesus and say, man, he had some great ideas. He was, really a, he was really a prophet. He really had some wisdom about him. I, I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I did a, um, did a wedding out in Colorado in the fall, and after the ceremony, a woman came up to me with some questions about some things she heard me say about Jesus that led to, to a conversation we had about the exclusivity of Jesus. And at the end of it, she said, well, Jesus is definitely a savior. And, and I answered, and I said, well, you know, according to, to our faith tradition, my faith tradition, we actually believe that Jesus is the savior. And she said, well, he's definitely a savior. And that was the end of the conversation. And, and what's interesting to me is she's saying, and, and that's indicative of what so, how so many people view Jesus in our culture even today. Uh, people are still saying about Jesus now what Peter said people were saying back, uh, back then, 2,000 years ago, about him. That he's up there. You know, he's, he's, of course, he's a great teacher. He's a wise prophet. He's a sage. He's got some great ideas. It, to me, you'd have to be, no offense, a little bit ignorant to not acknowledge that. Because here we are in the year 2023 AD, literally human, I've said this before, human history is divided into two stages, stuff we did before Jesus got here and stuff we've been doing since. No one in history has had an impact on human history like Jesus had. So of course it doesn't take divine intervention to look at Jesus and say, yeah, he's up there, he clearly had some good ideas, but I don't know exactly who he is. What does require divine intervention according to Jesus What requires your heavenly father to open your eyes according to Jesus is to realize that Jesus is more than just that. To realize that Jesus is not just a wise teacher with some good ideas, but he is not a, but the Messiah, the ultimate savior, apart from whom we have no hope because we are that lost in our sin. That requires divine intervention. So let me ask the question that so often unlocks the meaning of the Bible. Why? Why does it take divine intervention, according to Jesus, to admit that? And, and, and here's the answer I put before you. It's because admitting who Jesus is means at the same time admitting what our hearts are most terrified of admitting, which is that we are insufficient. We are inadequate and incapable of running our own lives. But the way that the Bible talks about all humanity, again, nobody gets to look down on anybody else because we all fall into this, that every human heart, we're almost like addicts. We all are. And what we're addicted to is this idea that, that we can handle it. 
You know, they, they, of course, were not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I don't, being born again, having, you know, the Son of God to die so that I could let. So maybe some people need that, but not me. I'm not that bad. My problems aren't that deep. I can save myself. And so when we see these kind of truth claims by Jesus, it's so offensive to us. Because what Jesus does, what the Bible does, what the message of the gospel does, is it basically is like an intervention for all of mankind. And what it's primarily communicating to us is, I'm sorry to tell you, but the problems in your heart go far deeper than you want to admit, and it is beyond your ability to solve. And the reason we hate that is because we all naturally live in denial because of that. A couple of years ago, I I came across a true story of an allied commander at the end of World War II that was liberating a death camp. He uh, he was a battle-hardened man. He'd seen basically everything that you can see in wartime, but, but even for him and everything that he'd seen, when he walked through that death camp and he saw the inhumanity that took place there, it was, it was almost enough to, you know, to undo him. And so he went into the nearby town because this death camp was essentially a part of this town. It was more or less in its backyard. And, and he went and he called all the, villages to come, uh, the villagers to come out, the people of the town, because he was convinced there's no way that they didn't know what was happening in their backyard. And every person in the town to the person said, we had no idea what was going on. And so this, this commander made every single person from the town walk through that death camp to see what was happening in their backyard. This is a, I'm going to say it again. This is a true story. That very evening, after the entire town saw what was happening in their backyard, the mayor of that town and his wife went home, and they both decided to hang themselves. And they left a note. <clears throat> they left a note behind, and this is all it said. We didn't know but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. The Bible says every, I know that's a super sobering story, but the Bible says every human heart is like that. That's why Paul in Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth. It's not that we don't have access to the truth, it's that we actively suppress the truth about ourselves and we choose instead to live in denial. We live in denial about how much inhumanity our hearts are actually capable of. We live in denial about how deep the problem of our sin actually goes. We live in denial about how utterly powerless we are to face the suffering and the loss and the hardship and the difficulty that this life's going to throw at us. We live in denial about the fact that the things we despise in other people we quietly sense about ourselves. And the reason that we spend so many calories tearing down everybody else is because we need to to bolster our flagging sense of self-worth. Aren't you glad you came into church this morning? I'm just here to encourage you, brothers and sisters. The Bible says there's at least a part of us that knows that, and we actively suppress that because we don't want to face that. And so when Jesus Christ comes along and says, I'm not just another sage, I'm not just another prophet, I'm not just another teacher, because you need more than that. You need a savior to come and live the life that you could never live, die the death that you deserve to die. And unless you surrender your life to me and center your life around me, you have no hope. There's nothing more offensive to that than these prideful human hearts of ours because we don't want to admit what that requires us to admit, which is that we need a savior. We are incapable. We are inadequate. We are insufficient in and of ourselves. I know that's a painful thing in our super touchy-feely therapeutic society. Can you imagine how much better society would be if every single person moved through life with that kind of humbling awareness 
Imagine how much better leaders would lead, politicians would lead, how much better our marriages would be, our families would be, our friendships would be, our, our, our workplaces would be if everybody could simply admit what Jesus Christ stands ready to offer us if we would simply admit how much we need him. That's what we're primarily blind to. And when I say that, you think through this concept at all, you realize, yeah, there's a sense in which our eyes are open the day that we come to Jesus, that blindness is dealt with, the day we start following Jesus. But that's something that needs to be dealt with over and over and over again in our lives because there's something about us on this side of eternity we, we just have this natural tendency to revert back into that blindness, back into that darkness, and to live in the, in the denial that is so comfortable to us. And so this leads us to the third question, the last question that I wanted to put before you today. What can be done about this? How can you actually cure, can you heal spiritual blindness? And according to this passage, <clears throat> there are three things that spiritual sight requires. I'll give them to you on the front end. We'll walk through them and we'll be done. Spiritual sight requires, first off, patience. Secondly, it requires community. Thirdly, it requires trust. We'll walk through these three things and we'll be done. First and foremost, spiritual sight requires patience. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but it's, it's clear that Jesus heals this, this man, this blind man, in stages to let us know that our spiritual sight is, is ordinarily healed through a, a process. And I don't know that there's any better example of that in the entire Bible than the person Jesus has in exchange with here, Peter. Uh, what's really fascinating, it's, it's interesting how much information we have about Peter's life, both before and after he, he, he came to know Jesus, I'll put it that way. And if you follow his life through all four of the gospel accounts, and all of them have a tendency to include different details, kind of look at the same thing from a different angle. Uh, Peter's story, and maybe this hits home with some of us, Peter's life is the story of somebody who just, he, he, he got it little by little. You know, he just, he took one more step. And of course, this, this encounter right here, um, this, this where, where, where Peter confesses Jesus is Messiah, this looks like, uh, and I think it is, but it looks like a moment where Peter takes this huge step forward. But if you're familiar with how the story goes after this, we'll get into this next week, you know, immediately after this, I mean, in the verses after this, Peter has to rebuke, or pardon me, Jesus has to rebuke Peter, and he actually calls him Satan. Quick side note here, you might be having a rough morning. Jesus hasn't called you Satan, so keep your head up. He has to say that to Peter because as much as he gets it, there's still a whole lot of it that he still doesn't get. And we see that specifically at the cross where he's still denying Jesus and he's just a mess, which I can sympathize with because I can see a whole lot of that in myself. But what's so interesting about his story is that, of course, there was a moment in Peter's life when he moved from darkness to light. Of course there was. Of course there was a moment when he, when he, uh, you know, he was lost and then he was found. He's blind and then he could see. He's, he went from trusting in himself for his salvation to Jesus but it is impossible to know when that moment actually was based on what we see in Scripture because his growth is so progressive. It's so incremental. It was, you know, pardon me because I think this gets overused a little bit, but it was a journey. Let me shift gears here, get a little personal. <clears throat> For whatever reason, I have found myself in the last, uh, I don't know, maybe a year or so, I have been listening to, listening to, um, to podcasts, sermons, lectures, whatever, and reading a lot of books that are centered on this idea, 
this idea that the Christian life is a journey. And, and as of this week, actually, I just finished reading a book. I'd recommend this to, to everybody. Uh, the book is called A Critical Journey, The Critical Journey, and it deals with something called stage theory, which is this idea that there are stages to the journey of following Jesus. I mean marked, definable, discernible, recognizable stages to the journey of following Jesus. And, and the book is really, it's an invaluable tool for helping you understand kind of which stage you're in. And, um, and what I found really uh, captivating about it was the book also spent a lot of time talking about how we tend to get stuck in each one of those stages, and what we need in order to move forward. Here's the, here's the kind of vulnerable part here. I think the reason that that kind of literature is, is um, so kind of grabby to me right now, why, why I'm so interested in, uh, in it at this moment in my life, is because if I'm being honest, which is a good thing for a pastor to do, especially on Sunday morning while he's preaching, is for a while now, I have been feeling stuck myself. Uh, so again, if you're new to this church, I just want you to know, if you feel like you're stuck in your relationship with Jesus, this is a safe place to admit that. I just did. Now it's blessed, all right? Now we're all allowed to say that, all right? And, and, and I, you know, I guess there's a chance maybe everybody else came into church this morning tripping over the spiritual fruit falling out of their pockets. But in, in the event that I'm not completely alone in the universe and somebody else out there actually feels like they're not making the progress that they want to make, this next part's for you. Maybe... You come to this story, and it's not very theoretical to you. Maybe it really hits home to you because you feel completely stuck yourself. Maybe you felt that way for longer than you've cared to admit to anybody. Uh, to, to borrow language from this story, maybe you feel like the man in this story, you are in between touches. Meaning you see there's a level of illumination in your life. You see, you just don't see nearly clearly enough. There's all kinds of ways that can manifest itself. <clears throat> I'm not getting emotional. My throat's just really dry. Sorry. Maybe you're listening to this and you understand that you're a sinner. You got that part down. You see that clearly. But you don't see the love of God for you nearly as clearly as you see your sin. And what that's, that's lent itself to is a lot of shame, <clears throat> a lot of self-loathing, a lot of stuff that the Bible's clear is not from God. Or maybe, and I think this one is real, real common in our over-intellectualized society. Maybe you're here, it's not so much that you're stuck between, you know, God's holiness and his love or your sin and, and his forgiveness. Maybe you're stuck between the rational and the experiential. I think this is where so many people live and die in their faith. Meaning, maybe you would say, you've heard the arguments. You've listened to the lectures. You've read the books, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and based on what you've seen, you would say, yeah, it makes sense. You believe, logically, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's really the only way to explain how Christianity went from a dead Jewish carpenter to transforming the Roman Empire and going into every nation, tribe, and tongue like it has the last 2,000 years. It makes sense to you rationally. And yet, the knowledge that Jesus Christ has died and, and then rose again, that hasn't gripped you the way that the Bible says it can and it should and caused you to move out into life with joy. So you're, you're, you're just stuck. Maybe you're stuck in some other way, but my, my point is the question that I'm trying to bring to the service here is what do you do if that's where you are, if you're just stuck? This is the kind of preaching I would want to listen to if I wasn't a pastor, by the way. That's why I like offering these ideas to you. Is that for me? Oh, you are the man, Mr. Dave. <clears throat> You're not stuck. You're moving. <laughs> Thank you. 
Mm. Amen. Stuck with some dry mouth on a Sunday morning. Terrible. All right. So what do you do if that's where you're at, if you're stuck? Believe it or not, there is a concrete answer in this very story. All you need to do is exactly what the blind man in this story did. So what did he do? He had the courage to answer Jesus's question honestly. Let's walk through that. As a thought experiment, what would have happened? What do you think would have happened? And I think this is how so many people today interact with Jesus. What do you think would have happened if after Jesus's first touch, when this, when this man's eyes were opened to a degree, but everything was still fuzzy, everything was still muddy, he, he couldn't see clearly enough. What do you think would have happened if when Jesus said, do you see clearly, the man just walked away from Jesus and said, well, it's better than it was, so I guess this is as good as it gets, and he went on about his life. Here's what would have happened. This man would have gone the rest of his life. I'm going to quote the brilliant Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones here who wrote an entire book on this passage. This man would have gone the rest of his life cutting down people and talking to trunks. That's what have happened. <clears throat> I can't take credit for that. That's David Martin Lloyd-Jones. But, but the point is, he didn't do that. He didn't play that game because he had something that's a very, very spiritual, a very mature, a very godly thing to have, which I'm just going to call a holy sense of dissatisfaction. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but to me, it took a little bit of nerve for this man to tell Jesus, think about this, it takes a little bit of nerve for this man to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, your first touch didn't get the job done. I need you to do it again. I still don't see clearly enough. You think about everything that Jesus has done up to this point. This is the same rabbi who has calmed a storm with a word. This is the same rabbi who, who dismissed a legion of demons from a man that they had held captive for who knows how long. This is the same Jesus, Jesus raised a little girl from death to life. It took some nerve for this man to say, Jesus, I know you've done these incredible things for other people, and I know that you touched me, and I'm so thankful, but I need you to do it again because I still can't see clearly enough. And so here's the point. Here's the point. Unless you and I are regularly getting to that place in our relationship with God, in our relationship with Jesus, where we're not satisfied with how little we see, with our level of vision. We know that we don't see his love and his holiness enough, or we know that we're not being as transformed as we need to be. We need him to touch us again. We need him to open our eyes again. Unless we are regularly being brought to that place of holy dissatisfaction and allowing that to drive us back to the feet of Jesus one more time with a posture of heart that says, Jesus, I'm so thankful for what you've done in opening my eyes, but I need you to do it again in deeper and more life-changing ways. Unless we're always going back there, we're gonna stall out and we're gonna stop growing. First and foremost, spiritual sight requires patience. Secondly, and this one will be shorter, spiritual sight requires community. I don't know if you caught this in, in this story, but we're told on the front end, this is the only reason this, this man's eyes were opened. We're taught that this man was brought before Jesus by others who begged Jesus on this man's behalf. He didn't even ask. His friends, I'm just going to call them his friends because they did the greatest thing in the world for him. They begged Jesus on his behalf to touch him and heal him. Now that is incredibly instructive there. And, and, and here's why. I don't know that anybody has their life transformed and their spiritual sight restored just because they wake up one day and say, I, as an individual, am going to start attending church. 
and I'm going to start reading my Bible, and I'm going to start praying my prayers, and I'm going to, you know, fill in the blank, all right? I think we wish it worked that way because we're living in the most individualistic society in history, but based on what I see in the book of Acts and the New Testament, Christianity has never been and will never be an individualistic way of life, ever. Maybe if, if salvation worked, maybe if Christianity was like every other religion, where, where we actually had to do it ourselves, maybe then salvation would work by us just hearing some content and then privately practicing it and working it out in our, in our lives. Okay, maybe. But if salvation works the way Jesus Christ says it works, if salvation is about God entering into human history as a man and saving us through a relationship with himself, then what that means, frankly, is salvation works through relationships, not just with Jesus, but also with other people who see him more clearly than we do and are always bringing us back so that we might see him more. Secondly, spiritual sight requires community. But third, and this will be the last thing we talk about today, spiritual sight requires trust. Now, what do I mean by that? Up to this point in this teaching, and I decided to to save this for, for last on purpose, Up until this point, we've talked about how great spiritual sight is. And I want to be real clear, it is. What I'm about to say is going to make make sense to at least a few of you. And for the rest, just trust me on this one. Anybody who has walked with Jesus for any length of time knows that asking Jesus to open your eyes can be a terrifying thing. Because Jesus opening your eyes might mean him showing you things that you are afraid to see. Now, I said this earlier um, that I'm I'm reading through. I finished it, but I'll probably go back through this book called The Critical Journey. It's all about the different stages in the journey of following Jesus. And and one of the things that the book talks about, and this is the, the second book I've read in which this concept has shown up now. One of the things the book talked about is this thing called the wall. And I kind of debated and I went back and forth. I'm not even going to try to explain to you what the wall is. I don't know that I could do it in, in just one teaching, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, all I'll say is, is usually it's a, it's a place that we're brought to in our relationship with God as a result of great pain. It's a place in which great healing can take place, but it is a place that we tend to avoid at all costs. Without saying any more, let me just read to you what the, how the author describes the wall. And I'm going to read this knowing that this might very well be where some of us find ourselves this morning. Her name's Janet Hagberg. She said, we must face that which we fear the most. And that is why it's so unsavory and why so many people only enter the wall under duress. At the wall, we're usually asked to embrace our illnesses and addictions and to relinquish that which we've clung to or which we worship. We encounter oceans of unresolved grief covered by anger, bitterness, martyrdom, hurt, or fear. The qualities that are most helpful to have in the wall, and listen to this, although difficult to ask for, are clarity to know the truth and courage to face the truth and to move forward. The wall is the work of the heart, but it is not for the weak of heart. That's why we have so many clever ways 
to avoid it. Now, I wish I had more time to elaborate on that concept, but that is a sermon series for another time. What I, what I simply want to point out to you is, did you notice that the author said that asking for clarity, asking to see reality, asking Jesus to open your eyes, her words, is a difficult thing to ask for. Now, why would that be? Here's why. It's because once he opens our eyes, we have to deal with what he shows us. Once Jesus opens your, I'll make it personal for you. Once Jesus opens your eyes, you have to deal with what he shows you about your past. You have to deal with what he shows you about your childhood and how it still affects you today. You have to deal with what he shows you about those deep wounds that you've never really faced, you've never really processed, you've never really grieved. We have to deal with what he shows us about the depths of our self-centeredness, about our tendency to use people to feel good about ourselves. Once he opens our eyes, we have to deal with what he shows us about all those areas of our lives that we've yet to surrender to him. All those areas that we've been keeping back from him that have yet to be transformed and healed by him. Now you think through this for any length of time and you realize at the end of the day, Asking Jesus to open your eyes in some ways might just be the most terrifying prayer you can pray. So here's the question. Where's the courage to even ask that, let alone face what might come as a result of that? Where does that kind of courage come from? And the answer is, we need to see what Jesus went through for us so that he could open our eyes, call us out of darkness and bring us into light. Let me call the worship team up, and we'll end with this. At the very end of Mark's gospel account, we're told that when Jesus hung on the cross, darkness fell on the land, and Jesus called out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was a physical darkness that fell, a literal physical darkness, but it was just a picture of the depths of the horror and the agony of, this, of the total spiritual darkness that Jesus experienced as he lost the light of his father's love when he took our sin on himself. At the end of the day, the only reason Jesus could call the man in this story out of darkness and into light, the only reason he can call any of us out of darkness and into light is because he entered into our darkness for us. And I've, I've heard people ask me, and I don't know if this question's ever cross your mind, but I have had people ask me as a pastor, how could Jesus' suffering be infinite? When you talk about how bad it was, the depths of the agony, the, the cosmic nature of it, you know, at the end of the day, sure, crucifixion is a terrible thing, but it only lasted a weekend for Jesus. The space between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, it was just three days. So how can you say that his suffering was all that bad if he knew that he was going to come back? And, and let me just offer you this. I don't know if you've ever thought that before, but I'll leave you with this idea. I'm not an expert, but I've heard experts say that it is better to be born blind than to lose your sight later in life. Because there's something especially difficult, especially painful about having the light, seeing the light, and then having it taken from you. And if, that, if, there's, any, if there's any merit to that, if there's any truth to that in a physical sense, then would you just, as we close, would you just take a moment to try to consider what Jesus actually went through for you? Jesus had, in an eternity before he even entered into human history, Jesus had a perfect relationship with his Father, 
Scripture says God the Father is light, and in him there's no darkness whatsoever. Jesus basked in that light. He enjoyed that light. He celebrated in that light. He knew that light, a depth of of love and joy and peace we just can't even fathom. And to have that taken from him on the cross, to experience the opposite of that, to to, to have our darkness, to take that into himself, to lose the light of his father's love, all I can say is we just can't fathom what it is that Jesus actually went through for us. We just have no concept of it. But the point is, he, he went through that so that you'd never have to, so that I would never have to. He went through that because that's how valuable we are to him, because that's how much He loves us and he's waiting for us to follow him out of our darkness and into his light. And and, and because of what Jesus has done, that that light from God, we don't have to be afraid of that anymore. There's nothing left to expose us. Jesus took care of all of that. And so now that light of God, instead of blinding us, instead of burning us, that light heals us and it comforts us and it transforms us. And the more that we see all that Jesus went through for us, how valuable we must be, how loved we must be by Jesus, the more we grow in the confidence to come to Jesus either for the first time or just the next time to come to the feet of Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, would you open my eyes to everything that you need to show me? Even if it causes me to see things that I don't want to see, even if it means dealing with things I'm afraid to see, would you open my eyes? I trust you. That's the cure for spiritual blindness. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you that you are a Savior that loved us enough to take the darkness that we all deserve on yourself so that we would never have to know that darkness. We would never have to know what you went through on the cross. Thank you that you've, for 2,000 years you've been calling people from death to life. You've been opening the eyes of the blind. And I'm sure there's people here this morning, God, that, that hasn't happened yet. And maybe they've been I don't know, maybe this comes out of left field and they don't even know why they're here this morning, let alone what you're doing in their life. But you're calling them, you're drawing them, you're seeking them. Maybe there's people that for a while there's been this nagging realization that there's just something off. God, I just pray that this would be the day, either for the first time or for the next time, that you would open somebody's eyes. Whatever it is that you need to show us about who you are, about who we are, Give us the courage to come before you and pray, Lord Jesus, open my eyes, knowing that we can trust you. In the name of Jesus, the one who opens the eyes of the blind, we ask these things. And all of God's people said,